What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And that was also a tremendous turning point in our business was when we started hiring leaders that we could actually delegate to. So we could set vision for and then be more editors on their plans. And so they would bring in their plans to us based on the vision that we outlined. We would edit, bless those plans, and then actually give them the opportunity to do it you know, their way um, on an agreed upon kind of timetable. And that then allows you to leave work every day and not stress and fret um, about what you're doing and actually be able to sit back and kind of think from more of a, a big vision perspective. Because ultimately, the more people that you're managing or if you have a ton of direct reports, you, you have no space and time for that because ultimately, leaders have to care for others' emotional needs. You're listening to What I Know, I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode Freedom Through Delegation. When your business is your passion, and you're such an entrepreneur that you've never worked in a large operation before, there's a temptation to do it all. And I mean, do it all yourself. For a lot of us, managing isn't a natural state. And when it also hasn't been a learned practice, it is hard. My guest today, Amber Venz Box, got a lot of things perfectly right when she was starting out her company, LTK, which was originally known as Reward Style. She had her finger on the pulse as bloggers rose to influencers, and her company cracked the first code on how they could earn real money from their content creation. She literally predicted the future and helped create it. But when it came to managing a scaling company, that wasn't her strong suit. Before we get to how she discovered and tackled that and built LTK into a $2 billion company, Amber was the child of an entrepreneur with an extremely early start towards selling fashion. You know, growing up, my dad always encouraged me um, to be an entrepreneur. And the way that he put it was that he was able to pick me up from school or go have lunch with me or go to my brother's, you know, sports games because of um, his, you know, status as an entrepreneur and the fact that he owned his own business and was able to make those decisions for himself. And I will say certainly now, what, 35 years ago, that was a, a different time. I think for entrepreneurs, it's, um, I would almost say that entrepreneurship gives you less flexibility in, in so many ways, but he had encouraged us from an early age. And I grew up just always loving fashion in the fashion industry. And I can remember, you know, as early as elementary school, actually knitting scarves and selling them on the back row of my math class and getting kicked out of math for distracting students by doing that. And then you know, by middle school, I actually was um, selling denim skirts. So I'd have kids bring an old pair of denim and then I'd charge them $20 to essentially deconstruct the denim and then put it back together as um, a denim skirt. And then in high school, I launched a jewelry line and that actually lasted for quite a while, um, you know, over, I don't know, close to a decade maybe. And that was, um, so I guess there's a, there's a pretty rich history of me always wanting to, to have and start my own businesses. And then, you know, separately around just getting dressed and, and fashion and styling, you know, I remember growing up in the era of Mary-Kate and Ashley in Full House. And then, of course, they had their series where it was Mary-Kate and Ashley in Paris and in New York. And 
I would watch those shows and study their outfits and then would call my best friend and say, okay, well, do you have the white kids? Okay. Well, do you have a jean skirt? And I would recreate those outfits for the two of us to then match at school the next day. So um, it's interesting to see how even from probably age five, um, I was already doing what I still do today. Wow. So you are not only creating businesses, but kind of curating yourself and your friends' lives and and, uh, pre-content kind of outfits. That's amazing. Um, Did you ever try working for someone else? Did you ever try a conventional path? I did. When I was in high school, that was the first reality show. And it was Jessica Simpson and it was the newlyweds. Uh. And I, you know, like all of these shows, I studied her outfits and her accessories. And she had these great gold earrings. And I found out that a store in our town had those same earrings. And I went in and looked at them and I remember they were $120. And I knew that my mom would never spend that kind of money on me for jewelry. And so I grew up over the next you know, few years, just dreaming of being in that store. And when I went to college, my dad said, okay, I want you to just focus on college. I don't want you to work during the year. You work during the summer, but during the year, I want you fully focused on your studies. And so I just didn't tell them And I got a job at that store and I worked at that store pretty much full-time all through college. And I just wanted to be around those amazing pieces. And I I loved being in the store and I then earned a lot of responsibility. Um, I was there all the time and I got to ultimately merchandise the store, which meant styling the windows and the racks and then help them to choose what lines we would have. And then I'd pitch those um, designers that they should sell into our store and then actually do the buys. And so I actually sort of got the benefit of owning my own boutique without actually having their financial responsibility of owning my own boutique. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Did you stick it out through college? And um, and I, I know it wasn't your the typical path to, to starting a company, but bring me through college and into, into starting your own business when it, when it was first a glimmer. So throughout the year, I would work at that store pretty much full time. And then each summer I would do something different, but still in the fashion industry. So at the time, Rachel Zoe was the first really celebrity stylist that I knew about. Mm -hmm. And I put this plan together after freshman year of college and I brought it to my parents and I said, look, I'm going to be the next Rachel Zoe. And here's my plan. And this is where she is today. And if I back into that, I'm going to need to go to LA right now and start building my connections and working in the fashion industry. And my dad said, okay, but bring your little brother. And so (laughs) (laughs) we truly packed up our car, drove across the country. Um, I was 18 years old. He, I don't even think he was 16 years old. And we went to LA and I found a really inexpensive place to live. And I found through kind of very random connections, a way to work for a fashion stylist in LA. And I spent the whole summer day and night, um, really just schlepping clothes around to photo shoots. And it was at that time I realized that I really loved LA, um, but I no longer wanted to be a fashion stylist. So I came back to college and worked in the store again throughout the year. And the following summer, um, my best friend was going to work. Um, She wanted to be a news anchor and she got a job at um, Brian Williams. And she said, why don't you come up? We'll, We'll share an apartment and you can work in fashion. And so We did that and we shared um, a bed in a three-bedroom apartment, tiny, tiny, tiny little space. We had a mattress and neither one of us were getting paid at the time because that used to be legal. (laughs) Right. Oh, yes. I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we would um, get a slice of brie and a bottle of wine pretty much every night and we would just share that because that's what we could kind of afford and entertain ourselves and swap stories. And um, I worked in New York that summer and then came back again and worked at the store. And then I ended up graduating from college early 
you know, I came into school with credits and um, I was just really, I guess, efficient with my class load every semester. And so I graduated a semester early and then immediately went into working even more at the store where I already was working. And about that time, I actually met Baxter, who is now my husband and was my co-founder of LTK. And he was in business school and I had a jewelry line that I had started in high school and it had actually become um, a real business. And so by college, I was selling that line in the store that I worked in. And around this time, um, it had grown to be you know more than double my, my salary at the store. And I remember when we started dating, I, I had a trunk of all the pieces and I brought them over to his house and I was laying them out all over his room and showing him and um, you know, had absolutely zero emotional intelligence to understand that he did not care at all about my jewelry. <laughs> um, but he did care when I whipped out my laptop and I started doing work alongside him and he saw my spreadsheets and he asked me to show him kind of what I was working on. And it was really just tracking all of my sales and my financial performance. And he was like, what are you doing with all this money? And I just told him so proudly that I had fantastic designer handbags and shoes and was very well-dressed. Um, <laughs> And he said, so you're, you're really just buying clothes with all this money. And to me, the jewelry line had always been play money. Mm. Um, I had my real job. And to me, that was like my real salary and everything else was sort of like how I had fun. And I think what had happened pretty quickly was that my fun money was um, pretty material. And so he helped me at that time to think bigger. And to, we, I launched e-commerce with his help and then also expanded um, to sell my jewelry into department stores um, across the U.S., and so a few months later, I left that full-time job to focus on my jewelry. And that was um, kind of a, a breakout moment for me as far as being on my own, owning my own business, and then trying to kind of grow beyond um, just sort of a, a, a small little jewelry line in a single store. Yeah. So so you um, started taking your fund money and plugging it back into the business and, and sort of self-financing your growth. Was that your only approach to funding at that point? The other way that I was making money was through personal shopping. And so I had seen by working at the store the way that these personal shoppers worked. And what they would do is go into boutiques around town and they would negotiate with the owners a commission. And they had their personal clients and they would check out clothes from the stores and take those clothes into their clients' homes and dress them for you know vacations or events. And whatever they sold the client, the store would pay a commission on. And so when I left my job full-time, um, I immediately went to all the other stores around town and I negotiated that rate with them. And I was using um, kind of the personal shopping business as a way to um, further invest in my jewelry line. And really around, let's see, it was early 2010. It was actually New Year's of, of 2010. Baxter and I went on vacation to Florida. We land and it is the coldest week on record in Miami. It actually snowed. And I had only bathing suits. <laughs> um, and so we had to entertain ourselves every day by not being by the pool. And so I think about halfway through the trip, you know, it was raining, snowing. Um, I had, I found a little boutique there and it had all these amazing clothes from Europe. And I came out of the store. He was kind of sitting at a table um, nearby. And I was like, they had this designer and this designer and the owner, she's amazing. And I was just so excited about what I'd found. And he so lovingly said, you know, why don't you start a blog so that you can tell somebody who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was back to back full circle with the jewelry line. But, um, you know, it, he really did say it in a very loving and genuine way. And he walked with me across the street. There was a little bookshop and we got a notebook and we sat down and he was like, truly, you should start a blog. Like, what will this blog be about? And he sort of helped me to form the idea of how I could actually share my passion for what I was doing with other people online. And so, 
pretty quickly, I stood up um, a custom website because at the time that was the only option. And I learned how to use WordPress to, to publish these blog posts. And I got a camera and um, hired a photographer to use it and started publishing three times a day. And the Dallas Morning News ran this full page article. And at the top, it just said blogger, huge type, uh, all caps. And the whole article was about how I had um, begun giving away my services for free online. Ah. And, you know, that's not the way I described it to them in the interview. (laughs) (laughs) Darn journalists. (laughs) They really broke it down for me. Um, And I was so excited about having this piece of press and that this website I have was taking off that I really didn't think much about um, what they said. I just thought that they were confused. And within about six months, I had cut myself out of my personal shopping business because all of my clients were going to my blog. They were getting my newsletter. They were getting all the information they needed from me. And they were doing it in a much more efficient way and on their own time. And they loved it. And they would text me and message me and reply to newsletters and tell me that, you know, oh, thanks for the bag. I was the first one to have it. And you're right. It is the best. Or, oh my gosh, the jeans you showed. I cannot believe how inexpensive they are. And they fit so well. And they just thought that they were my biggest cheerleaders. And meanwhile, I'm thinking I'm now paying a photographer. I've just paid to build a custom website, which is not cheap. And I'm not making any money on personal shopping anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that was the point where, you know, Baxter saw really the pain that I was going through. And he said, well, you seem to like blogging better than jewelry, which was true. Um, and he said, you've now cut yourself out of your business, but do you want to keep blogging? And I was like, my dream would be to continue doing this. And he said, well, why don't we just find a way for you to make money doing that? And we went on a walk. He said, okay, rainbows, unicorns, anything's on the table. There are no limits. How do you make money as a blogger? And I grew up in retail and what I knew was a commission on sales business. And I was like, well, I'm just, I I modernized my business by bringing it online, but now I don't have a way to make money. So can I just earn a commission when I sell things online the same way that I did? When I was selling them offline, because I I feel like that was a really fair model, and it's it's exactly what I'm doing, and so that would make sense. He goes, okay, well, what what's this thing going to be called? And at the time, the company was called Reward Style, and and I I said that I said Reward Style, and because my thought was, if you have great taste, then people are going to buy the things that you recommend, and you'll make money. And so we got on Domain.com, and we looked it up, and it was available and we got the domain and we started building in the fall of 2010 um, what would launch the following year as reward style. Was it just referrals for you at that point or could other people use it as well? So we built it around my needs entirely. But around that time, there was a handful of girls around town that were dabbling in blogging. So um, you know, for anyone who remembers the, the days of blogging, um, Sea of Shoes was a big blogger in Dallas. Yes. She was the first one that came to my mind from Dallas. Exactly. Yeah. Her mom, Judy, as well. And then Tina Craig from Bag Snob was based in Dallas. And then I had a few friends that were sort of more dabbling. One that was still in college at the time they had started requiring you to have a blog and building a blog for class. And then I had another friend that started a Tumblr with her best friend, and it was just sort of a way to share inspiration. And so I knew a handful of people that were sort of doing what I was doing, but in a very different way online. And so I reached out to them um, and just said, hey, do you want to like test this thing? Like you can actually make money blogging. It's, it's working for me. I'm actually able to pay my rent by doing this. And basically still talk about whatever you like. And if we have a relationship with those retailers, you can actually use these links from our platform um, to link out to them. And they'll actually pay you a commission if someone buys something. And I had gone to um, a blogging conference in really early 2011 because I was still looking for 
other ways and all ways to professionalize and make money as a blogger. And I met, um, there was a, a few girls that they had on stage there. And when they walked off stage, I would run over to the side and ask them how they made money. And all of them said, well, I get free clothes or I get invited to events. And no one was making any money. Um, everyone was living at home. Everyone had other means of supporting themselves. But I kept up with those girls. And so whenever we launched the platform in a way that other people could use it, they were my first calls. And so I actually called um, Leandra from Man Repeller. She was one of uh, my earliest kind of blogging friends. And I was like, Leandra, um, remember how you told me that you just, you know, you get free clothes and you get invited to stuff. You know, I have this platform now and you can actually just, whenever you're talking about something that we have, you can use our links and you actually get paid a commission if people buy the things you're talking about. So she jumped on board and then she also had a network of bloggers that she was friends with in New York. And she was like, can I tell my friends? And so it has been a referral business for the last 10 years, bloggers telling other bloggers so that they could support themselves through the platform. At what point did you realize the phrase creator economy did not, you know, was not spoken yet? Uh, we didn't think of bloggers as, sure, they were content creators, but it wasn't, you know, like a phrase that might have appeared in that headline uh, that you had that just said blogger, right? Um, when did it morph into a, a real sort of economy that was recognized outside of just your business model that other people were using? And, and how did um, Like to Know It kind of come to be? You know, the last 10 years have been transformative almost every single year. And when we mm. started Reward Style 2011, that was the original name. Of course, um, our brand name changed this summer, 2021. But when we started the business, um, Blogger was, if you knew the word, um, then you were in the minority. By about two years later, um, if you knew the word, it was a pejorative term. Then about two years after that, it was bloggers are banned from fashion week. Bloggers are bad. Mm. Um, there's tons of press around you know, the traditional media trying to essentially suppress what was happening. At the same time, technology was changing everything. So when I started my blog, you had to have a, you know, a desktop computer or a laptop, which wasn't necessarily common. You also had to be able to pay to have a custom website built you needed a really expensive camera and you needed the time to be able to take, I would say a blog post would take around five hours to publish. So you had to really want it. Um, around, let's see, 2013 was when Instagram became popular and was just acquired by Facebook. And at that point, you had two things happening. One was all of a sudden you had these phones with cameras in them that could actually take a decent photo. Because before that, when we launched, I was on a Blackberry. That's not taking any kind of a photo. And really the app store was just launching. So um, I think it was like the following year, the app store for the first time came loaded on your phone. So this was a, a really um, transitional moment in technology. So within a few years of us launching, you now have all of the tools to create and also publish and build audience all on your handheld device, which is something that we all had was in your purse. So there was not the barrier to entry that was financial. The time barrier to entry was much lower and your um, really emotional triggers were happening much faster. So for example, on my blog, when I published, I would hope that someone would come comment, but it might take like a few days and I'd only get a few comments. Mm. All of a sudden with social media, I could publish and immediately start seeing likes and start seeing comments. And so you have the publishing platform, you have the tools to make the content. And then the third thing was, you know, we were there, we were the fuel to the fire. You could wake up and make money every single day by creating content because we existed. And so that really set off a new industry. And 2015, I was invited to speak um, as a keynote speaker at 
interactive at South by Southwest. And um, I was on the first day, I was a keynote um, and I was on after Barack Obama. And that was such a tremendous moment. And I'm still so grateful to South by for actually reaching out and asking me to speak and explain to people what blogging was and why it was going to matter and what the future of it looked like. And it was around that time that we started getting inbound from brands. So up to that point, um, I jokingly say that I was throwing my body at cars, really trying to get anyone to pay attention to me or take a meeting so that um, they would join our platform. Because one by one, we recruited every single brand to our platform. Um, and today we have over 5,000 brands that are integrated into LTK. When we come back, I'll talk with Amber about her business's extreme growth and her own personal growth. But first, a quick break. Let's fast forward for a moment just to right now, your brand is called LTK and you just closed a funding round of $300 million, valuing the business at $2 billion. You have made more than 130 women millionaires through their LTK earnings. That is wild to me. What else do we know about the size of the business and the scope of it? Gosh, it, it, it sorry, I'm, you know, just candid response. It, it is so exciting. It's exciting. It just, just, just happened. <laughs> the news just came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the business, if I was to take you through kind of a quick timeline, you know, we, we started working on the, the concept 2010. By 2011, we had a product in market. Uh, we, you know, launched as a, a platform that was built for really fashion bloggers. And then the following year, we launched the brand component um, of our business. And so with managed campaigns for brands. And so what that meant was they could pay a commission on sales to um, bloggers at the time. And then now with this expansion, they could actually tap us to help them see which bloggers they should be working with. We had all the information about who was actually converting and in what categories and what regions. And so they came to us to access that information to cast for paid campaigns. Let's see, around that year as well, we actually expanded internationally. So we opened our London office in 2012. So we were very quickly an international business. And that's been something that's really important to kind of who we are and how we serve um, both creators and brands around the world because the global barriers have really come down. Um, and brands anymore, just they still want to sell a lot of things to a lot of people. And today that means really a lot of people anywhere in the world. And so, you know, a brand with that kind of goal, they don't care if it's a, a boy in Dubai or a girl in McKinney, Texas, as long as they're driving sales to their business, they're excited about that. And so um, our ability to tap influencers on a global scale, and then also for our influencers, for them to be able to access brands and brand deals on a global scale has been really critical for the success of the business. But um, you know, as we kind of march through that timeline, then 2017, we um, launched our consumer platform. So the consumer shopping platform and at that point, we became a three-sided marketplace. So we had been B2B up to that point. The company name was Reward Style. When we launched a consumer shopping experience, we called that Like to Know It. And then now it's, you know, what, three or four years later, um, we've rebranded the entire organization to just LTK, which is the common acronym for Like to Know It. Um, and it's how our clients kind of know us and refer to us. You know, I think you hit on some of the, the biggest stats there. It's, you know, now more than 130 um, women actually have become millionaires through the LTK platform alone. And so, you know, growing up, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and to have that opportunity. And I remember even in undergrad going to Barnes and Noble and getting books on entrepreneurship and how to be a good entrepreneur and come up with a great idea. And I was frustrated when after undergrad, I couldn't immediately go into grad school for entrepreneurship. 
And it's just a burning desire I always had. And then with my jewelry line, I reached a level of success, but there was very much a ceiling on that success because I didn't have the leadership or kind of some of the skills that it really took to grow beyond myself at that young age. And so something I like to say with the business is Baxter is very much the yin to the yang in the business. And he brought to the table a lot of the skills that I didn't have. He's my co-founder. And I think of LTK as the Baxter to every Amber. It's the platform that takes everything off their hands that maybe aren't their core competency so they can focus on what they love, which is creating content and building community. And then we can help them in the background really to grow um, a generational business. And so when I think about you know, what we're doing just beyond the numbers, you know, certainly customers are buying $3 billion. Actually, in the last 12 months, consumers have purchased $3 billion worth of products through the LTK platform, which means that a creator found something, put it in the context of their lives. It's something they love and use. And then other people have loved those products as well or found use for them in their own lives. And so that's exciting. The 130 um, millionaires, exciting. Brands have now invested more than $1 billion in creators through the LTK platform. But I think even on a larger scale, when I look at what's happening in the world, What makes me dream, I think, even bigger is the way that I believe that by putting this incentive structure in place for creators, which ultimately, like if we double click into what you're doing every day online, we're all spending over seven hours a day on our devices. The majority of what we're doing on those devices is going into these aggregated content channels. Those are populated by the people we choose to follow, which in many cases are our clients. What we've done is we've put an incentive structure in place that rewards them for what I'm going to call positive behavior. So what that means is like being helpful, building a community, being positive, being a place that actually helps others, and they can actually become wealthy by doing that thing. And so something that excites me is that one by one, we're actually um, helping people to understand that actually by being a helpful, kind person, you can actually kind of build a life and a business. And so I, I also believe that uh, we're, we're powering a new kind of generation of what it's like um, to contribute online. That is really a fascinating way of looking at it and quite a counter to the way that some uh, other social media does not include financial incentives to do the right thing and uh, therefore can become very, very messy. Interestingly, you know, as you've grown, you have, I'm guessing, had to, despite Baxter's presence and building that strong business backbone there, you've probably had to a learning curve in terms of leading the company and scaling it. Can you talk a little bit about how you've done that and what it's like to work with your spouse uh, in doing that? Um, I imagine it's both, it's been an education for you on sort of a personal level and a business one. You know, I'm actually so grateful to get to work with Baxter, but I also understand that it is not something for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a very unique lifestyle in that, um, you know, we were dating for a couple of years before we started this business together. And I will say that starting the business together while you're dating was very challenging and very rocky. Um, and I, we grew up really kind of together with this. Um, we, I think, really bonded over our mutual love of entrepreneurship. He had a business as well at the time that he had started. And then both of those businesses, we decided to fold whenever uh, Reward Style, now LTK, took off. But we've grown up in the business together and we've really learned how to work really well together. Um, We also have four children, so it's not just crazy at work. (laughs) It's crazy at home. We're a unique beast. When I think about I think some of the business challenges that we faced over time or that I've even specifically faced, um, you know, a couple of those would be first around hiring. You know, I think about the first 
people that we had in the organization, like, like many is just your friends. It's the people, you know, it's people around you. And, mm. and, um, I was fresh out of college and the people I knew were in college and fresh out of college. And, and that's who we had. And so, uh, what was fantastic about that generation of teammates was they had all the discretionary time in the world. They loved what we were doing. They were excited to be a startup and they made um, our clients feel very, very well loved. And then the business starts really actually taking off. And what I found then was as we grew from A to B is we really needed emotionally intelligent and experienced leaders and role models for that team. And that my best and highest use was actually really working on more of like the vision side and the brand side of the business. And I had gotten pulled into the weeds of hiring and managing a team. And that was not my core competency. And so I would say there's a minute of stumbling in the business where I remember the meetings that I used to host for the team that managed our creators. And I'm, I'm so embarrassed of what that even looked like or how, the, the tactics I was using to try to motivate. Um, it was just a really immature model and it wasn't something that was going to grow. And so you know, a step change moment for us was when we brought in more emotionally intelligent, experienced leaders that could be role models for our team. How did you kind of come to recognize that something's not your strength or that you need to bring in someone to help you in a certain area? I imagine that that was challenging. It was challenging, but it didn't feel natural. So I am a creative. I'm also an introvert. And so, and actually my my previous experience was all really as an independent contributor. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the boutique that I talked about earlier, I did everything but I was the only person also who worked there. <laughs> so I didn't have um, other teammates to learn how to work alongside. And I didn't have a boss that was motivating me or, or like even treating me well. Mm. And so I didn't have anything to reflect on when I came into that role. And, and it, I wanted my team to be happier and I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to motivate them or to, to kind of think beyond some really kind of junior ways of motivating people. And I also felt like I didn't have the time to do the things that I needed to be doing. I remember Baxter said, okay, well, who's someone that you know that you admire that you think would be great um, at kind of, you know, organizing this group of people and like motivating them that has these organizational skills. And I remembered a girl actually also from college, but who had gone to work for a consulting firm. And I thought, you know what, she has these sort of professional skills that I don't. And so we talked to her and she came over and started working in the business. And then we we're like, wait, this consultant thing is great. This is great for our next phase of growth. And we hired another consultant to run the other side of the business and start then actually organizing our hiring processes and our onboarding and really making sure that the mission of the business was very clear. And it was, they used all of the early skills that they had learned from consulting and brought them into our business. And that was a great step change at the moment as we really grew from around 12 people to 30 people and then 60 people. Today, the business um, is closer to 400. And so we've been through several other chapters of growth as well. I'm fascinated by the the international growth. Um, I know your team, you have members of the team distributed all over the world now. Um, what was the biggest challenge in, in expanding internationally and establishing different offices around the globe? You know, it required me to physically be there. So I actually used to spend about half the year in Europe and I would actually have to count the days to make sure that I wasn't overstaying my welcome in any country. <laughs> um, it, it was just being on the ground. Um, and so you know, using um, other people's, you know, network, like the team members that we had and other people that they had worked with and, and loved doing business with. And what I found in London was actually 
um, you have such great diversity there. And so people do tend to know, you know, someone from France or someone from Germany. And um, it's this great kind of melting pot, or at least historically has been. And so we were able to find interesting people um, that spoke many languages. And we initially ran um, our European business out of the London office. Um, we have since actually been able to invest in those leaders further and put offices on the ground in those countries. And, you know, the leaders we have today, we feel like are very investable. And so part of, um, you know, this investment from SoftBank will go towards actually growing our international presence and building out those teams. Getting back to talking about uh, a healthy partnership and a healthy kind of family life too. Um, do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs who do choose to work with their spouse or significant other part or life partner and how to make that uh, really productive at, at work and, and also healthy at home? Boundaries. Boundaries in your responsibilities and your role, being very clear about who makes decisions about what side of the business. And the other thing is physical space. And it can be hard. You know, I remember in our very first office, we shared a desk. And that was some of the worst years of my life because we were (laughs) (laughs) truly, we were trying, you know, new things. And I would be on a phone call with a potential partner and I'd be getting at the time G chats about things that I could have said better or different, or did I mention this? And being that intimately connected all day um, was not ideal for our relationship. And so physically separating ourselves. So today I'm actually, I'm sitting in an office and there's a space between us and then his office is on the other side. And that physical distance is really healthy. Also, we have different lines of reporting. So different members of our team report to me versus him. You know, today we rode to work together. I likely will be in a meeting or two with him today. And then I'll actually catch up with him on the ride home and I'll get to hear about what's happening in the other side of the business. And so I think the physical space and then also just the really clear delineation about who does what in the business. And then something that we did very practically that also changed the dynamic of our relationship was we decided that we were going to, well, A, stop working on the weekends, uh, which was a really big deal. And that didn't happen until probably close to seven years into the business. And then we also at that point said, we're actually not going to talk about work on the weekends. And so I, you know, I'm inspired everywhere. I would be on social media. I'd be seeing things and I'd want to immediately talk about the idea. And um, the negotiated point was that if you have something, write it down and put a calendar invite on the person's um, calendar for the following week. And I often found that I would have like sorted it out in my mind by the time we even got to that meeting or we would have the meeting and it was a thoughtful conversation, but it was at the appropriate time. And so our minds, um, we really tried to pull our minds away from work on the weekends because as every entrepreneur knows, entrepreneurship is emotionally taxing. And so being able to break away and think about something else, even for 24 or 48 hours is actually super healthy um, to your kind of creativity and your ability to elevate above the business and be able to set vision. Yeah, that's really interesting um, that to elevate above the business, to think beyond it and to help you grow. Um, I think we don't think about that enough. And you mentioned earlier that you're naturally an introvert too. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and how you've managed to, um, with that in mind, you know, be a sort of a public figure in that you're creating content and you're, you know, running a company and, you know, speaking on stage at South by Southwest. How do you kind of make that manageable for yourself and, uh, and your own kind of baseline, like level of introversion and comfort level? I guess a couple tips. At South by Southwest, the best tip that I got was you are teaching people something that they don't know about. And that gave me real confidence to stand on stage and and say, okay, these are just my friends out in the audience. And I'm just going to teach them, truly teach them as if I'm talking to my mom about 
what it is that we're doing. And so that kind of changed the way I started thinking about public speaking. Um, the other thing is, I think I'm so deeply obsessed with what we're doing. And I have been for such a long time that I think the passion and the knowledge that is just like, I don't have to prepare for a conversation in the way that someone who's like trying to study to be part of the conversation would. And being passionate about it and also seeing other people's success and the thought that I can share information with other people that can make them successful. I love that. I find that many bloggers, you know, if you're able to look at the profile of who our client is, a lot of social media stars um, are actually introverts, despite kind of being on a stage on, on a social platform. Um, and it gives that layer of distance that allows the introvert, I think, to succeed. Um, also, being an introvert gives you a lot more personal time, I think, and a lot more like time to reflect than being an extrovert. You know, I'm not doing as much socially. I'm, so, I'm totally contented by what it is that I'm doing and producing. And so I think that, you know, as I look back over the last many years, I think about all of the extra time that's been amassed just by thinking about and working through what it is that we're doing that other people haven't had. And it's kind of a 24-hour job. And is that time something you kind of have to budget for or do you naturally make space for yourself to have it and to do that deep thinking? So the deep thinking comes when you can delegate. Mm -hmm. And that was also a tremendous turning point in our business was when we started hiring leaders that we could actually delegate to. So we could set vision for and then be more editors on their plans. And so they would bring in their plans to us based on the vision that we outlined. We would edit, bless those plans and then actually give them the opportunity to do it you know, their way um, on an agreed upon kind of timetable. And that then allows you to leave work every day and not stress and fret um, about what you're doing and actually be able to sit back and kind of think from more of a, a big vision perspective. Because ultimately, the more people that you're managing or if you have a ton of direct reports, you, you have no space and time for that because ultimately, leaders have to care for others' emotional needs. And so um, you know, the more that you can kind of elevate in your organization, and what I mean by elevate is hiring fantastic people that probably could take your job or maybe should take your job. <laughs> um, that's the actual goal. Yeah. And the way that you do that um, is by having great accountability. And for us, we actually um, have implemented what's called OKRs. So I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with those, but it's objectives and key results. Um, if you don't know about it, John Dewar has a fantastic book called Measure What Matters, but you can find a lot of information about OKRs online. And essentially, it's really the only way to scale and the only way to perform. And so it essentially forces you to set on paper exactly how you're going to do what you're going to do, but it gives you the freedom to go execute. And at the end of that period, whatever period you've set, um, it either really forces sort of a reward system or it forces kind of an exit. Um, and so you have you know, very objective conversations that keep people accountable. And you can very clearly know in, in short windows um, if people are actually keeping pace with what you've hoped for their role. Was it hard to let go of those responsibilities and hard to establish trust? I, I imagine that's a tricky turning point. You know what? Trust is definitely earned. There were times where I was so happy to have things off of my plate so I could focus on the things that I was really passionate about. Um, we went through a period of growth a couple of years ago where we hired, I think it was like 11 VPs and over the course of a year. We were going through obviously some serious hyper growth. The organization had been completely flat reporting to Baxter and myself up until that time. This is maybe around 2017. And that was our first experience hiring at that level. And we made a lot of mistakes. I would just say we really just didn't know what we were looking for, to be honest with you. I remember there was a, C, um, a CFO candidate that we had interviewed and we'd gone to dinner with him. And I remember telling Baxter when we left, I was like, 
you know, he just didn't have passion. And I was just like, I'm used to like working with people who just have a lot of like flame. Um, and I was like, he was just very monotone. I was like, I just don't know if he's even excited about our business. I think, you know, let's pass. And um, I ended up actually about a month later on a flight uh, with a CEO of a publicly traded company. And we were discussing where I was in the business and the candidates I'd been looking at. And I mentioned this gentleman's name and she said, you passed on him. She was like, I've been trying to hire him back for the last like five years. She was like, that's, you need to like call him right now. And we literally did. I got off the the plane and called Baxter. I was like, we made a mistake, call him, hire him. (laughs) Those were some like completely serendipitous moments. I was a 6 a.m. flight to New York on a random like Wednesday. And so the reason I brought that up is around trust. The way that we, we talk about it internally is trust, but verify. And so you have to relinquish that trust to new team members and let them execute their plans and give them the freedom to be successful. Um, but then you also have to verify that they're doing the work in the way that you wanted. And so that's where like, I think accountability comes back to the table and the importance of those OKRs and laying out specific expectations and making sure expectations are met. And then just making sure that you're bringing people on who actually share your vision and respect who you are as a leader. And so that was also um, you know, a big growing period for us as we had to ultimately make some tough decisions uh, you know, about a year later about who made sense for the organization and who didn't. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's look to the future. You're armed with all this new funding, growing internationally even further. What else is in the future? And, and what, are your, what are your longer-term plans? I mean, do you see LTK as a public company someday? The crazy thing about our story was that we've actually um, never been what I would call meaningfully funded. And so being a business that was, you know, setting a vision um, for something that didn't exist at all, um, especially being in a female space about bloggers and based in Dallas, Texas and run by two children, (laughs) we were not super investable. Um, And so, you know, no proven track record, no network. And so for, you know, the first five years of the business, we were completely bootstrapped. Um, We then in 2015 raised a small round of funding um, that allowed us, you know, a little bit of extra growth. And then Baxter and I just decided a little bit after that time, you know what, if we can get um, to profitability, then we'll have every opportunity available to us. And the reason I bring this up is because I feel like it was from year one starting this business. Anytime someone is either starting a business or especially in technology space, I feel like every single person around us was like, when are you selling? Who's going to buy you? When are you selling? When are you selling? And honestly, it put this enormous amount of stress on my shoulders and honestly drove a lot of unhappiness. And the reason I, I say that is because I want other people's to not other people to not have that same experience. It's, you know, on the surface, I was able to say, look, we're a, we're a tiny company. Like we're still growing. We're still trying to realize our vision. But on the inside, I felt the pressure of other people around me thinking that we weren't successful because no one was buying us or we hadn't done a jumbo, um, you know, fundraising round. And a couple of years ago that actually I spoke with another entrepreneur just candidly about how I was feeling. And he said, the happiness quotient is expectations minus reality. and that helped me tremendously because he was like, you are setting the expectation that you are going to sell to XYZ or you're going to have this you know, crazy valuation or whatever. And every day that you don't hit that, you um, are disappointed and unhappy. And that was an aha moment for me. And it allowed us to refocus on, okay, let's, let's be profitable. Let's march towards our vision. And let's not do anything for anyone else with that expectation of things that we actually cannot control at all. I think that has allowed us so much freedom. And what I found with 
investors, my own personal experience, they like to invest in a sure thing, <laughs> um, which not many things are a total sure thing. But us being a profitable business and, and growing really in a healthy way um, allowed us the opportunity that, that we've just seen with SoftBank. Um, I wanted to share that as a, as a backstory, just because other people who look at the, you know, the beautiful beginning and then this beautiful moment that we've just had and think that it's very linear, it was very, very messy. Mm-hmm. Um, And so now as we kind of look to the future of what we're doing, it's actually just executing our vision much faster. So it's pulling the roadmap for all three sides of our business, for our consumers, our creators, and our brands. It's pulling those forward. Um, And the way that we're going to do that is by hiring hundreds of people this year. Wow. So if you are looking for a place that (laughs) has a fantastic culture and is building the future um, and while we're helping people, please come join us. (laughs) Well, um, thank you so much, Amber. Uh, This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor to be here with you and Inc. After speaking with Amber, a few things really stuck with me. First, she wasn't afraid to annoy her partner with her passions. And he had the smarts to see what in there was working and what would make a good business. They seem to work together remarkably well, even when they have completely different skills. And Amber, the introvert creative, has found a really intelligent way to use her skills to drive the business even if that means not managing too many people at once. She realized her skills weren't a perfect fit for every role and learned the power of delegating to free herself and free her creative mind. That freedom doesn't come without trust and OKRs and all that accountability. But once in place for her business, it worked. Finding a little bit of freedom, that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend or colleague who would love our show, please just send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas for founders we should speak to, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who weirdly enough also got his start deconstructing denim, is Joshua Christensen. What I Know is made with help from Blake Odom and editing by Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.